For we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Father, we want to walk in newness of life. We want to be able to say with your servant Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what it means to live a life of resurrection power in Christ Jesus our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, there is definitely a nerdy side to me. And I love the Discovery Channel. There it is. It's out. Uh, in 2007, the Discovery Channel aired a documentary entitled The Lost Tomb of Jesus. The documentary described the finding of the Talpano tomb in Jerusalem and made the extraordinary claim that it was the family tomb of Jesus. Hmm. Though several New Testament names, including Jesus and Mary, were found inscribed on bone boxes, or what are called ossuaries, inside the tomb, the claims made in the film were summarily rejected by archaeologists and biblical scholars, who noted that finding the names Jesus and Mary in a first century tomb in Judea is about as extraordinary as finding the names Mario and Maria in an Italian family burial plot today. In the end, common names were found in a common tomb, nothing more. But what if the archaeologists who discovered that tomb were somehow able to prove indisputably that some of the bones they found were the bones of Jesus? Would you still be a Christian? In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says he wouldn't, and neither should you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, say this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This passage comes on the heels of Paul reminding the Corinthians about the first principles of the Christian faith. He wrote, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And followed this up with what many think was already an early Christian creed. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom were still living though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James, 
then to all of the apostles, and last, he appeared to me. Paul summarizes for the Corinthians the content and significance of the gospel message. He says, this is what we preach, this is what you believed, this is the good news by which you were saved, and this is what you must hold firm to. I find it interesting that the word translated preach, evangelizo, in the passage is the verb form of the word translated gospel, evangelion. I think Paul is essentially saying, I gospeled the gospel to you. I think he's really saying the gospel lies at the heart of Christian preaching and the resurrection lies at the heart of the gospel. And so it is no wonder that later on in the letter he says again, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. In our gospel reading today, we see Jesus leaving the disciples no doubt about his physical, bodily resurrection. He invites Thomas to put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On Resurrection Sunday alone, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and another Mary, to Cleopas and another disciple, to Peter and the disciples, excluding Thomas. Eight days later, he appeared to the disciples again, including Thomas, and then to James, and to over 500 disciples at once, most of whom, Paul says, were still alive when he first wrote to the Corinthians. So he said, go ask them. People heard the risen Jesus. People saw the risen Jesus. People touched the risen Jesus. Jesus ate and did many other things to convince people of his bodily resurrection. Why? Brothers and sisters, the bodily resurrection of the Lord is the foundation of the Christian faith. It is the thunderous, undeniable closing argument in God's appeal to man through his son, Jesus Christ. John 22.2 says, after he was risen from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. The bodily resurrection of Jesus vindicated everything that Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry. Because of the resurrection, Jesus was who he said he was. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death did what he said it would do. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is worthy to receive the complete loyalty and obedience of his followers. One at a time. 
Because of the resurrection, Jesus was who he said he was. When Jesus said shocking things like, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, or I and my father are one, or before Abraham was, I am, he was not only claiming to be the promised Messiah, but the creator God and the rightful king of the world. Listen to how the Apostle John describes Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth. Listen to how Jesus identifies himself to John at the start of his apocalypse. <laughs> I can't say it. At the start of his vision. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death did what he said it would do. Jesus said things like, your sins are forgiven. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, shall live. When he said these things, he was claiming to have power over sin and death and the ability to offer eternal life to those who believed in him. Listen as John continues his description of Jesus in Revelation. Remember, he said, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Listen as Jesus continues to identify himself at the start of John's vision. Remember, he said, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is worthy to receive the complete loyalty and obedience of his followers. When Jesus said things like, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He is saying that following him costs everything. And that the resurrected life is one of total commitment to him. It is on this third point that I want to focus for the remainder of our time. What do people look like when their lives become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? What does a community look like when it is made up of people living like that? The book of Acts gives us a couple glimpses of what walking in newness of life looks like. Our first glimpse comes after Peter preaches the gospel to a large crowd that had gathered after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In one day, 3,000 people believed the gospel, repented of their sins, were baptized into Christ's death, and were raised to walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next verses describe what that life looked like. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone that had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That sounds a lot like our reading from the book of Acts today, doesn't it? Let's take a moment to examine more closely the resurrected lives of the first Christians. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, let us examine ourselves and ask if we, the people of all souls, are living in a way that would allow us to experience the grace and favor of God like they did. From both accounts, we see that number one, the resurrected life is a life of devotion. The first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do we? Two, the resurrected life is a life of submission. The first Christians submitted themselves to the apostles, who had been given authority by Christ himself, and were placed in charge of their souls. Do we? The resurrected life is a life of unity. The first Christians acted as though they were members of one body. When one member suffered, the whole body suffered with it. Do we? The resurrected life is a life of charity. The first Christians sold possessions of their own free will and brought the proceeds directly to the apostles for distribution, shunning even the glory that might be gotten by directly giving something to someone in need. Would we? The resurrected life is a life lived in private and in public. The first Christians lived virtuous lives, with glad and sincere hearts, and people saw and admired it. Do we? It is no wonder the Lord added to the, their number daily those that were being saved. The resurrected life is a life of holiness. First Christians were not perfect, as the very next verses of Acts describe. Do you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They were a couple. They sold property and brought the proceeds and laid them at the disciples' feet. But they kept back part from them, for themselves and lied about it. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? lie to the Holy Spirit, and Ananias fell dead at the apostles' feet. And three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in. And Peter offered her a chance to tell the truth. He said, did you sell the property for so much? She said, yes, 
so much. Peter said, the same young men who just brought your husband out are going to bring you out. And she fell dead at the apostles' feet. The first Christians took sin seriously. We. Perhaps we are convicted by none of these characteristics. It may be the, that the words of F.P. Harton will ring truer to Christians living in the modern Western world. <coughs> Excuse me. He says the end of the Christian life is supernatural perfection. And yet many, perhaps most Christians, are content with natural respectability. They are righteous, but not overly so. Their life is a compromise between God and mammon. It is not that such people are bad or have succumbed to the lures of the grosser or more obvious sins. Their overt sins may be few, but they are trying to live a supernatural life on a natural plane and so withhold from God that which he most desires, their whole heart. Brothers and sisters, we must give our whole heart if we are to live the life we are called to in Jesus Christ. That is why the Apostle John wrote what he did in today's epistle. John is writing to believers. They know the gospel. They know what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Yet John reminds them that the entire purpose of the gospel is to bring people into fellowship with God. Their lives are to be united with his. Therefore, how they live their lives matters. Because as John says, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Because light has no fellowship with darkness, those who want to fellowship with God must walk in the light. John says repeatedly, do not lie to yourselves. You cannot live part of your life in the light and part in the dark and have fellowship with God. We cannot live a life that includes willful, habitual sin and have fellowship with God. We can say that we love God, but if we don't obey him, we don't. We can say we have a relationship with God, but if we don't obey him, we don't. And John gets this directly from our Lord, who said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This does not mean a life lived in the light will be perfect. God knows our frame, and he is merciful and compassionate. When we sin, if we confess our sin and bring it into the light where God is, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And what to do afterwards? Get up, brothers and sisters, and continue walking in the light. Don't keep sinning. Don't presume on the goodness and mercy of God, for this too is walking in darkness. Paul said it this way, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 
When the 40 days the risen Lord spent with his disciples were complete, he said to them, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Did you know the word translated witness in this passage is the Greek word martis, from which we get the word martyr. That word began as a uniquely Christian word that described those who with complete devotion to their Lord poured out their lives because of their fidelity to Christ. The apostles all became witnesses to Christ in this way. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead has worked in the hearts and minds of men and women throughout history whose lives also became witnesses to Christ in that way. I want to close with the testimony of one such person. Have you ever heard of Vivia Perpetua? She was a 22-year-old educated noblewoman who lived in the city of Carthage in North, Africa, uh, in North Africa around the year 202. Perpetua had a father and mother, two brothers, and an infant son who she was still breastfeeding. She was a recent convert to Christianity who had just completed her preparation for baptism when she was arrested along with her slave for professing Christ. When she was brought before the procurator, she maintained that confession, refused to offer a sacrifice for the emperor's well-being, and was imprisoned. While in prison, Perpetua wrote an account of the days leading up to her martyrdom. Her diary is one of the few writings by women that has survived from the ancient world. In it, she describes experiences ranging from the daily anxieties of being separated from her son to the extraordinary visions God granted her of the life to come. She even recorded a conversation she had with her father when he came to the prison to plead with her to turn away from the faith. Father, I said, do you see this vessel lying here to be a little pitcher or something else? He said, that is what I see. And I replied to him, can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. And I said, neither can I call myself anything but that what I am. I am a Christian. A few days later, Perpetua was brought into the arena. She was gored by a wild cow and eventually run through with the sword. Her name literally translates life eternal. And her testimony has brought exactly that to thousands through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in light of all these things, let us walk as children of light. Let us offer afresh ourselves, 
our souls and bodies as a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice to the Lord. So that when we are offered friendships and comforts of this world in exchange for our fellowship with Christ, we may answer as Perpetua did. I cannot call myself anything other than what I am. I am a Christian. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.